Brazil is quite unique in a lot of aspects. And that's one of the reasons, you know, over my years of experience, shows that the typical American bank that was very successful comes into Brazil, wants to replicate, it was a disaster. Several reasons, the speed of decision in Brazil is different. The amount of problems that they face is different. And so trying to replicate a model without, quote unquote, tropicalizing doesn't work. So tropicalization is probably the word here for entrepreneurs that are coming from a different jurisdiction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with the legendary Bruno Balducini partner at Pinheiro Neto, the leading law firm in Brazil, where he spearheads the financial institutions group and advises domestic and international clients. If you've ever worked in the Brazilian financial and fintech ecosystem, you have probably crossed paths with Bruno or his team since he has worked on the majority of major financial transactions involving incumbents, startups, and payment institutions. He's also actively participated in the drafting and improvement of the rules for the Brazilian financial industry. We discuss a brief history of Brazilian fintech and why Brazil's central bank has been an extraordinary partner to fintech startups, interesting trends entrepreneurs and investors should be paying attention to, and what central banks around the world can learn from Brazil why the fintech opportunity in Brazil is so large and special, but why it's also not a market for beginners, working with multi-billion dollar companies like Nubank, Stone, and Paxeguro from day one, common traits of successful entrepreneurs, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy this chat with Bruno from Pinheiro Neto. All right, Bruno. How are you today? All the way from Sao Paulo? Yes, all the way from Sao Paulo, Miguel. Thank you. Thanks to you. Thanks for joining. We have the legendary Bruno Balducini, you know, the center of fintech in Brazil, joining us today. So, so Bruno, we're going to talk about a number of topics, but let's start with fintech in Brazil. Why is it so special? And, you know, why should we be paying attention? I think the reason fintechs are so special is basically are two reasons, right? One is that there are many pains in Brazil to be solved. And so I learned over time that the most successful fintechs came because they had a pain on something and they found the solution. And Brazil, because of its bureaucratic you know, nature founded by Portuguese, you know, a very, you know, red tape and other things, it creates a lot of opportunities, right? I remember when I started my, at the firm, right, uh, 32 years ago, right? The firm was known by the foreign investors to help them to enter Brazil. And one of the things that the investors loved uh, was the fact that we could act for them as attorneys in fact, and they could use our room here as an address. 
And so it's so bureaucratic, then you find the solution, right? So the same model is replicated over time. And so the fintechs, basically, they see space where, you know, there is a lot of room for improvement. So that's one of the factors. And you have to add one very Brazilian thing is that Brazilians love technology. So it's very easy for a Brazilian to grab an app and try without really knowing, without having. And so we saw that with some clients that tested lending, for example. He said, it's amazing. You guys, you know, you already in six days, I disbursed all the funds. We're buying the states that would take like six weeks. And so that's, they are prone for testing things in technology. So that's one of the key features that makes fintech special. But the second one has to do with the regulator. And one thing is compared to the U.S., for example, we have one regulator only for payments, credit, right, banking, which makes it substantially easier. But the most important thing is the change of mind of the regulator. And I've you know, been working such a long time at the firm, I managed to see very clearly the way the central bank, which is our main regulator, changed their mindset. And this happened when there was a questioning in Brazil saying, look, we have a stable economy, you know, no inflation, the currency works very well, everything works. Why interest rates are so high? Why you don't see a lot of competition? And then you could see that the central bank was seeking for answers, right? And two reasons basically were the lack of competition, notwithstanding the fact that the central bank is very open for foreign investment, right? The first one, the lack of technology per se, vis-a-vis -vis the size of the country, made it impossible for someone to invest. Think about a bank, European bank coming to Brazil and say, I'm going to compete with Itaú and Bradesco. They need to open... 5,000 branches in a country the size of the U.S. and in places as remote as Amazon. Is it going to work? What is the risk, right? So then technology comes. And because Brazilians love technology, I don't need to go to a branch. I just use my app. And so I can lend, offer banking services through the app. And I have the same coverage of Itaú and Bradesco without necessarily opening a branch. So technology, one of the most important vectors of that caused the central bank to realize that there was the moment to create or to be aggressive in finding solutions or bringing more competition. And the second one is access to information. Although, you know, the banking market is extremely developed, you do not have access to information if you are incoming into Brazil. So if you're a new bank, a new fintech, and you want to know if Bruno is a good payer, if Bruno has a good credit risk, only we don't have a positive credit bureau. And so only if you've been in the market for a long time and have a long relationship with Bruno, then you have information that is very valuable. This means a barrier for an entry because I don't have the same knowledge that the incumbent bank has. And so open finance comes and it takes the second barrier. So these are the two vectors that the central bank realized what were necessary to do it. And interestingly, you know, the central bank, when they realized that, they started to test the loss. And they were very aggressive in some aspects. So for example, in the beginning of the payment regulations, you could offer a new wallet in Brazil. So I could offer, hey, Miguel, give me 200 reais. I can say, I can give you a balance of 200 reais in my wallet. And I didn't need any license. I could literally get your money, go to Las Vegas, spend everything and disappear. And that's it. And the central bank allowed the creation of this e-wallets, the credit card, the acquires without any prior approval of the regulator. They just needed to enter agreement with Visa and MasterCard, and that's it. And so you think, wow, that's very aggressive, right? And I asked the central bank, I said, aren't you afraid that a lot of fraud? And the answer was, look, 
we've been extremely conservative over the past years. We always wanted well-capitalized banks. and But if we don't create or we don't take away the barriers and we don't take some risk, the competition will not come because it's too much concentration. So we need to be aggressive. And so that really draw my attention saying, wow, you know, the central bank officer is by nature a very conservative person. They don't take risks. And I could see these guys saying, you know what, let's take a risk because otherwise it won't work. And so these are the two main factors that make it, that make the fintech so interesting. And obviously the central bank is very curious. So we had several cases and I have even today, even if it's a non-regulated entity, the central bank says, do you mind introducing me to that guy? And they have meetings. They ask them. They understand the model. They ask information. So it's quite amazing to see how the central bank is changed the posture of being the regulator, the punisher, into an interested party to say, how can I help you? Right. And so I think that explains a lot why the environment is like that. You know, this morning, just this morning, I had a meeting with a very senior U.S. central banker. And when I brought up the Brazilian central bank, this person was intimately familiar with picks, with what the central bank is doing, and in a good way, not in a, not, you know, not in a distrustful way, in a very positive way. So it's uh, having ripple effects around the world and hopefully other markets, other central banks can learn from this. What was it that kind of sparked the change in attitude? Was it a single person? Was it leadership? Was it something else? I think there was two reasons. One is there was a, at that time, back in 2013, 14, there was a push from Congress saying why banks make so much money and why interest rates are so high, right? Today, if I go in my account in a bank and I try to go withdraw account, right? It's a withdraw account and I take money. The interest rate I'll pay will be probably close to 200% per year. Like, but I'm not a credit risk, so why, right? And so th there are several reasons, right? The system, the collection system is not that they're very good. You have a lot of taxation to the banks. You have several economic, macroeconomic reasons, but you also have, I like profits and we like to have big ROEs. So the truth is that there is a lot of margin here. And so the central bank realized that, you know, this pressure from society, which means Congress, allowed them to be more aggressive and say, okay, you want something, so give me power through new laws so that I can enter the market. So what trigger really was, to be honest, I think, introducing some new models, right? And one of the models was, we had a company called Innova, it's still today in Brazil, right? They wanted to come into Brazil and had meetings with the officers of Innova and say, look, we want to bring the model. We can lend in the U.S. and I want to use technology. And obviously the next sentence is, sorry, you can't because lending is preview of banks. If you lend without license, you can go even to jail. So super serious stuff. So then how can we do it? And so we helped this client to cup, to partner up with a financial institution and basically used the existing banking regulations at the time, which we transformed the Nova Brazil as a banking correspondent. The bank would lend, but the bank would not want to take risks. So immediately after the, the lending, Nova would buy. So the economic risk would always be off the balance sheet of the bank, but who was lending was the bank. And so we tested it, and that's the example I mentioned earlier. So he brought $500,000, 
put the app on in place, made all the arrangements with the bank. Off he goes. Six days later, he comes back and say, wow, I lent the 500,000 in six days. The Brazilians basically tried everything. Look at the GPS here graph. I led all over Brazil with zero acquisition cost. And in the six days as well, I had someone trying to counter the system and trying to fake and trying to get extra money. So you guys are good for both reasons, right? For the good and for the bad. It was already fraud in the system, but amazing. These guys are amazing. So I said, great, you know, and then I started to think myself, well, you know, I'm looking at the headlines in the newspaper, partner of Pino Neto, bankrupts and over in Brazil, something like that. I said, you know what, let's go to the central bank because you guys may grow too fast. The model, legally speaking, I'm comfortable, but it will bother a lot of the big banks. And since they may try to claim this is an illegal transaction, let's go to the central bank. So I called the officer of central bank and said, look, we have an innovative solution in credit. Can we pass by? And he said, sure. So I go with this client and we go into the central bank in Brasilia. We enter the room and we are 25 people from the central bank. I go in and say, oh my God, is for the good or that's it. Right? We're going to die here today. So we go in and the client looking at me and said, what the hell? Right? I said, no, don't worry. And so you have the different departments of the central bank, the norms department, the money laundering departments, the competition department, you know, all these people. And then the client goes, does the presentation, shows the numbers of reach. And at the end of the meeting, the central bank director says, I loved it. Do you mind? I understand that there is no legal issue here. You're well, he even said good things about our office that you have a good lawyer, so you don't have to worry about that. But do you mind if we follow you closely? And the client says, what do you mean? He said, do you mind sharing more information over the time? And he said, sure. So we left. And I was, and the guy says, wow, is it normal for the central bank to ask a non-regular? I said, no, but look, he's asking, let's do it. And then another model comes into place, a P2P model. I said, look, hey, let's go to central bank again. Same reaction. Love it. Do you mind if you keep it close? Then three years go by, lots of newcomers come. And then the central bank calls me. The norms director calls me and said, hey, Bruno, you know what? I like this model that you guys created, whereby you have this very light banking lending, but the risk goes to the credit funds, the capital markets. Why don't you help me to draft a regulation? I was like, what? Draft a regulation? The central bank norms director. That's pretty cool. So we actually called the other fintechs and we all sat down and drafted regulation together with the different departments of the central bank. And then you could see how the process worked. And that's where it became very clear to me at that moment that there was a huge change in central bank. These guys were like almost like incentivizing the models. They were like proposing ideas, discussing openly, well, this will not work for the central bank. You have to understand, but this would... So I think that at that moment, you could see clearly there was a change of heart, which was irreversible. And honestly, I think I was right, because from then on, a lot of changes happened. Let's talk a little bit about both investors coming into Brazil to back, especially fintech startups, and also entrepreneurs, right? What should, let's start with entrepreneurs. What should ambitious founders keep in mind if they're considering either launching in Brazil from scratch or expanding to Brazil as a secondary market. And, you know, we both know a few companies in common that have started maybe in the U.S., maybe in Mexico or elsewhere, and then Brazil has become their second or third market. So for those considering that strategy, what are some of the things that are important to keep in mind? 
Sure. So for an entrepreneur point of view, I think the f- rule number one, only because you work in Mexico, Colombia, or state, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the same way in Brazil. Brazil is quite unique in a lot of aspects. And that's one of the reasons, you know, over my years of experience, shows that the typical American bank that was very successful comes into Brazil, wants to replicate, it was a disaster. Several reasons. The speed of decision in Brazil is different. The amount of problems that they face is different. And so trying to replicate a model without, quote unquote, tropicalizing doesn't work. So tropicalization is probably the word here for entrepreneurs that are coming from a different jurisdiction. The second one is a saying in Portuguese that says, Brazil não é para iniciantes, which translates, Brazil is not for beginners. In other words, although it has a huge opportunity, it is a complex country. Complex in the sense that it's a poor country, but the banking sector is extremely sophisticated. It, it doesn't really match. You, you get impressed to say, how can it be such a poor country and have this overdeveloped banking payment sector? So that's also something that the entrepreneurs think, oh, I found a solution that is great, but in Brazil, everyone is doing already. So that also, the person has to be mindful. So this means that a lot of planning is required in Brazil. Planning to understand really the market, planning to understand how the users are. They are different than other jurisdictions. And mostly is regulatory tax. It is a complex country, especially on tax. And so just bringing the model without spending some time in putting in a spreadsheet, putting in the flows, thinking the impacts is something that tends to be fundamental, even because in a lot of the cases that we received, Because Brazil has this different taxation system and different regulations, they had to change the model that Brazil works differently than other jurisdictions. Otherwise, it would not be viable, the project, because it would pay so many taxes or be so cumbersome that it wouldn't work. So that's probably the most important thing that we tell the entrepreneurs and saying, great idea, but let's sit down with the tax guys. Let's go over step by step, because in the details, you will realize that you have to change the way you operate. So probably from an entrepreneurial point of view, that is something I would pay more attention. It makes sense. How about investors? And I ask because we are at a point in the market where, of course, capital markets are not as active as they were and for later stages, they're drying up in many ways. But there are still many investors, several dozens that I know, uh, that are very eager to invest. And there's many others who are considering, right? And maybe some of them are listening to this show. So how can we get them comfortable to come in and co-invest with all of us? Right. So I think first, again, you know, have proper lawyers helping him because they need to understand, you know, as an investor, you know, what are the risks you're taking? For example, it's very common on the VC model that the VC always putting all the money, has all the economics, and they also want to have a lot of decision-making process. However, if the target is a regulated entity, such as a bank, a fintech, or a payment institution, right, an issuer of a credit card or a wallet, and the VC is part of the control group in the sense that it has a lot of interference on the day-to-day, the central bank, which is the regulator, will say, well, this guy, this VC, this investor is a part of the control, which means under banking regulations that he, she, it will have unlimited liability irrespective of guilt or fault, if the entity fails. So you need advice to know that because obviously you cannot take an unlimited liability risk if you're not on the day-to-day of the business, although I understand that he wants 
the investor wants to protect its investment. But you can reach the same result without taking this risk by having a good shareholders agreement with veto rights to protect your investment, but at the same time, not being perceived by the central bank as part of the control. So that's something that for regulated entities is crucial that needs to be understood, right? The second thing is Brazil is somehow volatile in a lot of aspects, right? You have the politicians and then you have a scandal here, a big company, 12, 20 billion loss. Nobody explains how, things like that. And the most common error of investors is they get spooked and they get out. Brazil is a mid to long-term investment. And if you do that, the returns are going to be higher than anywhere in the world. So you need to keep the cool. And trust me, the firm, Piero Neto, has 80 years. We've been to, I don't know, 12 economic plans, five different currencies. We came from the military area into democracy. And we're here. And they're working very well. So the message is, there is volatility, but you cannot react with your gut. You cannot think in an American mindset of you saying, okay, that's a problem, close it. That's where you lose money. So patience and resilience is are the two typical characteristics, but it pays off because I don't know one specific case that the person stayed on and says it was a horrible investment. Generally, it's usually good returns. I'd love to hear that. As a Latino myself, I can relate Bruno, how did you get into financial services? I saw in your resume, you spent some time at MasterCard, I think maybe as an intern, but uh, that was a long time ago. How did you get into this world? Sure. So law students, usually they it's a five-year course, right? And usually in Brazil, you start working the second or third year, right? When I joined law school, I joined law school, and in Brazil, again, is another problem. You don't have the liberal arts curriculum. You have to say, what are you going to be? I want to be a a doctor, and you are like 17 years old. You don't have a faintest idea. So honestly, choosing law was, I was like, I wanted to be either a doctor, a lawyer, or a journalist, like kind of ample, right? And so I decided to do law because it would give me more flexibility to do other jobs. And so I joined law school. And then the second year law school, and I was like, you know, studying, but I was a lot of litigation issues. I was saying, I don't like that. It's like litigation, courts, judges, all this formality, all this very complicated Portuguese. Like, I really don't like it. And then I saw an offer to join MasterCard in their trainee program. So I said, you know what? I'll try. I don't even know what is a credit card, but I'll go for it. So I joined there, stayed six months. And then six months, in six months, I got an offer from another partner that knew me from university. It says, why don't you join here? this law firm, Pinheiro Neto. And again, I don't come, my parents are Italian. They don't understand anything about law firms. I remember telling my mother saying, look, I'm moving from MasterCard and I'm going to Pinheiro Neto. And my mother was like, Pinheiro, what? Are you crazy? You're in this American company. You can even go to the States. Are you crazy? No, no way. I said, no, they say it's a very... Then I spoke with my father-in-law. I said, no, no, it's a very traditional go there. And because I was at MasterCard, by pure luck, literally... I was assigned to the banking sector because the recruiter partner saying MasterCard, credit card, yeah, banking, right? Yeah, okay, bank. It was like that. That was the decision. And honestly, I joined it and I didn't have a clue because universities in Brazil don't give any banking products, regulations, nothing. And to be honest, the first weeks I was like, what the hell I'm doing here? Because these guys are speaking Portuguese, but I don't understand what they're saying because everything's so different, Right. And then slowly, I had a boss called Antonio Mendes, who's like was the number one lawyer. He renegotiated Brazil's debt, 70% of Brazil's debt representing Citibank. The guy was 
amazing, super humble guy, but amazing guy. And so that was really my inspiration. And slowly I started to better understand and study and say, it makes sense. I'm liking this. And I actually started to work for American Express. American Express was a client of the firm and they were launching American Express in Brazil. Then they became an international car. Then they decided to to create a bank. So I actually started to get really involved. And as an associate, right, then I went to study abroad. I did BU, banking law studies. Then I worked at Sullivan Cromwell and I came back and then I made partner, right? And I said, you know, we need to create a strong banking team. And we had very good associates. One of them was became a partner next year. So Jose Luis, Omid Gemello. So we got together and say, Zé, let's create a super strong banking team here. We, we, you know, we have a strong name. And so we created this group and we approached the central bank and we were, you know, very effective in bringing all these foreign banks open in Brazil and then leaving Brazil and doing all this stuff and then credit cards. And then the central bank decided became the regulator of payments. And because we were very strong in banking, the central bank kind of changed the banking laws just to make it simpler and to put payments. And we were already there. So basically, you can say we were the right guy in the right place at the right moment. And so we actually ended up already jumping in very fast on that. And a lot of clients of the firm also decided to join payments. And so that's where we obviously entered this market. And ironically, at that time, it, this is a very, you know, traditional firm, 80-year-old existence, you know, white shoe law firm, if you can call it like that, right? You know, even our building is square, right? So everything is square here. And so I remember that we went to create the first fintech and I had a, an associate of mine called Jorge Vargas, right? And Jorge left the meeting with the central bank. The one I told you, right? They said, very interesting. He said, I have a dream. I want to create a fintech. But I want to hire you, but I'm not a trainee. You know how much horrible salary I get, right? So, but I, I can't pay you. What? How can we do it? And I said, sure, Georgie. So let's do the following. I'll help you to, we do all the legal work. We use the firm. And if you raise some money, we agree on a percentage that that percentage is to pay our fees. Let's try. And so he created Biva, which obviously suffered a lot and almost went bankrupt. Anything you can imagine, we spent tons of hours without any result. And then luckily, Pagas Seguro at the same time was looking for a peer-to-peer model. I said, look, we have a guy from Pino Neto that used to be Pino Neto, just set this company and they bought it and we got our first success. And so together with this, we ended up creating today what we call an acceleration program where we get companies or guys or girls that have great ideas, but then do not have money to pay a typical law firm, but agree to take a five-year contract with us on whereby we do all the legal work, they use the firm as a whole. And if they have success, Series A, B, C, we take a percentage pre-agreed of money of that series. So we pay back our fees and eventually have some profit. And so this as well actually put us in the radar because a lot of these fintechs became unicorns because we helped the central bank to change the banking regulation. So they created a new type. Or we went to central bank and say, look at this technology. Why don't you change the regulation so that the, and the central bank did it. And so in a way, because of our relationship and strength with the in regulatory, we ended up actually changing the laws and creating value for these companies, which then received series E, B, C, D. And obviously we got our money back with some success. So today we had 42 companies in the program. We had 16 cases of success. 
But the most important thing is the fact that we then were perceived as a traditional firm, but very modern, and we could help the ecosystem of the fintechs and payments. So that actually was also very important for us. And it worked also as, interestingly, as an instrument to retain talent. All the new generation, if you say, hey, why don't you stay in Pionet? It's 15 years working around the clock and maybe you'll become a partner. Yeah, that doesn't sell too well. But the fact that they help a startup who has the age, the same age, and then one day this guy sells the company, becomes a billionaire, actually is very interesting for this new generation because they helped a company that made a difference or took away a pain. And so interestingly, this program has several you know, interesting benefits, right? Which put us really in the radar. And nowadays we have, I just had a, a long meeting with 18 members from a VC fund that are doing a trip in Brazil. And they say, can you give us an update? So we then obviously give an update on the regulations. And then they say, oh, you have a program. Let me know this. I want to introduce me to this company. Very interesting. So introduce to them and then they invest. So it's becoming even like a network of relationships whereby VCs, investors, and fintechs are, you know, all talking and we're helping them to talk. So it's kind of a, it's morphing into almost like an investment bank without fees, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. We always recommend it. And we, I'm, I'm proud to say that we've also invested in Gilgamesh Ventures. We invested in a number of companies that have gone through that program. But you know, what, what makes a great financial services lawyer? Because not only have you worked with internally at Pinoneto, but I'm sure you've worked with other law firms in Brazil and around the world where you've seen, oh, these guys are great or these guys are not so great, right? Yeah. I think lawyers are trained to see problems. So we are, our eyes, our mind is saying, where can go wrong? What are the consequences? So we are trained from day one, right? But what we are not trained is to say, okay, but what is the solution? So what I see in a lot of other lawyers, which are great to detect problems, they are unable to say yes, but you can do that with some risk because lawyers do not know how to take risk. They don't want to take risk. We use belt and suspenders. That's, our, that's how we are, right? We don't invest in fintech because we know everything can go south, right? And so the truth is that the reason that makes a difference for a lawyer is finding a solution because saying no is the most common thing that lawyers do. Finding the solution is difficult. But to find the solution, you need to know two things deeply. One, the regulations, but really what the regulation means and what the central bank wants to say and what are the precedents. And this only comes with time. You cannot read a book. You cannot read the law and say, okay, I have a solution. No, that's like an airline pilot, hours of flight. So that's one of the things. But the second and most important thing is understand your client business. Really sit down with a client and ask questions and say, tell me more, go into the details, what's wrong? And then you'll be able to make a difference. So probably that's where other lawyers fail because you're busy, you have a tight schedule, you don't have time to study the client. But if you do that, and if you know the regulations, the final result is the client saying, wow, I love this guy and I want to refer him and I want to go back to him. And that's really, if you look at the history of the firm, we obviously lawyers don't do advertisement because we can't, but the firm grown because we do a good work. So Pinheiro Lawyer says, do a proper work with quality that the money and the clients will come as a result. It's not the reason you do the work. 
So it's pretty cool. And actually, this is done eight years ago and it's being done until today. And it works for the fintech industry as well. How about entrepreneurs? Because you've also worked with a number of entrepreneurs and many of them have gone on to you know, become billionaires and, and have their companies IPO in the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, Brazilian Stock Exchange, but also you've seen some failures. What are the best entrepreneurs have in common? And this is a topic that comes up a lot, particularly when I talk to investors. I don't get to talk to that many lawyers. I think one of the things that it makes a difference is knowing when to take the risk. Because risk you're going to take ever. There's no way you're not going to take a risk. But when to take and what kind of risk is when you say, yeah, that I can't take it or, well, I could, but so that gut feeling and it's really gut feeling. Obviously, we help them to say the probabilities, the chances, but that decision is one of the reasons. The other one, you have to be bold. I remember, and it's a public information I can share. I remember I was helping Neon and Pedro, the founder of Neon, right? And so we are helping them to create a company. We changed their model. And then they decided to apply for a visa license, right? And for, obviously, the guy was very small. And visa was, like, asking a lot of questions. But the time was clicking and, the, and he needed to launch the product. And I remember it was a Monday. And I called him, any news from visa? He said, no. I'm like, okay. So I hang up. The next day on the newspaper appears the first page. He's, like, there with arms crossed and Valor Economico saying, now Neon is visa. I'm like, whoa. What happened? So I called Pedro. So Pedro, what happened? I said, nothing. Why? You said that Visa gave the approval. Did they? No. Are you crazy? He said, yeah, but now they have to give it, right? Because I already said. <laughs> so you see, you have to be. So, and he was right. He was right. Because then Visa gave them and because the guy draw the attention and investors and stuff like that. So you see, you need to be some, sometimes bold. And that's why the entrepreneurs are know which risk to take and be bold. Love it. Pedro is a big supporter of us and huge fan of that guy. And, yep. you know, the true entrepreneur. Bruno, before we run out of time, talking about the future, because we've talked a lot about the history of FinTech and the central bank, but thinking about the future, what are some of the trends in FinTech and or financial services in Brazil that get you the most excited these days? Sure. So there's probably three fields that I would pay more attention, right? The first one is related product of PICS. So now there are discussions starting on the guaranteed PICS, which is kind of a buy now, pay later, which could have an impact that would replace a credit card. It's as strong as that. And uh, there are, you know, central bank wants to create that. And one of the reasons is they understand that the credit card industry has its inefficiencies in Brazil. So Brazil in a credit card product transaction, you settle with the merchant in 30 days. You don't settle in two days. And you pay installments with your credit card, which is like very unique of Brazil, right? And the central bank understand that this creates a lot of inefficiencies in cost. They are creating a product which is very similar to a credit card in the sense that I can go to a shop, I can buy installments, but these installments are guaranteed by the issuer of these picks. In other words, if I buy on Amazon and I divide in 10 installments, because again, Brazilians also love to divide everything in installments, right? Even if it's more expensive, but God knows why. And then what happens is that each month I'll pay, I'll make a PIX. If I fail the PIX, the issuer of the PIX will guarantee it. So the credit risk for Amazon in this example would be the issuer, which could be a payment institution, a bank, which is great. In addition, I can also make a PIX, the bank or the payment institution make a PIX to Amazon real time. 
and finance the transaction, which is the buy now, pay later. These two products have the ability to replace the credit card, but in a much cheaper place because you don't need a network. The network is called PIX. So any company that has a bank account or any wallet, they are in the network. And there's no acquiring because the only acquiring you need is a bank account or a payment account. So if you take away the network and the acquiring, you're just doing the issuing and payment. Actually, this can reduce the transaction cost. And in addition, there is a law that people don't use it yet, which is a merchant is allowed to differentiate price by method of payment and term. So a merchant could say, you know, if you want to pay with a credit card, which I will receive in 30 days plus MDR, right? You have to pay 110. But if you pick me, I do it for 100. So if you add all of that, right, you can say, you know what? This could be very disruptive, and this will reshape the industry of credit, of credit card, of payments. And so something I would pay more attention is are the upcoming PIX products that are being launched or will be launched by the central bank. And it's so large that it's difficult for someone to say, I know what's going to happen. Nobody knows. But the point is that it has the ability to change upside down the whole thing. And so keep an eye on that is something I would really, I think, is a great success. The second one are the implementation of the open finance. Slowly, we are implementing the different modules. So now we have a real-time payment system together with a payment initiator. So you basically can pay things. A lot of people are joining the open banking on the banking products. So there's competition on banking products. So again, more changes there. So this has the ability to reshape. And in addition, you can actually either being a payment institution or a bank, become a data aggregator. So in Brazil, the open finance, you cannot have a non-regulated entity to be a data aggregator. You can't, only regulated. So again, closed markets. Open bank, but it's it's closed in that aspect, right? So a lot of these payment institutions now that participate in open banking will have access, unlimited access to organized information, which is the second barrier I mentioned earlier, right? And so this also has a different impact on the decision to give credit, offer products, you know, be competitive and things like that. So that per se has also a big impact. And the third one has to do with the new foreign exchange law. In December, we had a new FX law, which revoked a hundred year old regulation, believe it or not. And it changed the way the regulation works. Now it's a principiologic law with 15 articles giving the power to the central bank to regulate infralegally speaking. In other words, you have the principal, but then the central bank. And the central bank and the law says less registration, easier, newcomers. So now payment institution as of July will be able to operate in foreign exchange. So now you have a batch of newcomers with new technologies, with no legacy system, with better user experience offering, you know, FX products and different things. So that's one of the things. As part of the package, the central bank even allowed you to buy crypto and betting into games, games, I mean, games of ability, not of luck, right? You can actually remit money to do that, which is huge in Brazil as well. So all of that putting together, again, new products coming in, new features that can be allowed. But together with this, the central bank is moving forward with the CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency which will allow, and the law says that, for example, a bank in the States or a clearing entity to make a deposit in reais in Brazil with the central bank, so full faith and credit, 
And the central bank issues a token of real or a CBDC. So their logic is we want to create a Brazil real market internationally. We want the real to be converted. So this also will create other products and situations where we didn't think, including making remittance in real time. So that's what we call the international picks. We have helped a couple of clients to do a picks international, which basically using a stable coin, a stable currency, plus the picks. And the result is you can transfer money in 10.6 minutes. 10 minutes for the international part, six seconds for the picks in Brazil. So you start seeing these models, which again, the flow of funds and the speed of pay will change again, and which will be connected to the Brazilian picks. So again, huge change there, new products, new features, paying obligations. Again, I would probably look into that, which finally goes into what the central bank is doing, which is creating a group studies for tokenization of financial assets. So today, a credit card receivable can be registered in the registry like CERC, but the next step, I can tokenize parts of that receivable. And so what are the impacts for that? How can a foreign investor invest from abroad, for example, using the new FX regulations? So again, this almost DeFi, decentralized financing model that is being reshaped and is so wide that it's impossible, again, for you to know. But gut feeling says, keep an eye because opportunities are there. So probably in a nutshell, that's what I would look into. Bruno, you've given all of us a lot of homework of things to look into. <laughs> but it's all very exciting. People will have to re-listen to this episode more than twice. But honored you stop by. I always enjoy our conversations, be it in person or remote. So I'm glad we recorded this one. <laughs> Miguel, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And when you are in Brazil, don't forget to pass by and eat our cheese puffs. <laughs> See you soon, bro. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Bruno Balducini from Pinheiro Neto. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.